We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. As a child, Mary Barlow adored her old family house as a guardian with heart and soul. After her mother's death, her father soon remarried and sent her and her brothers away to live with older siblings. Mary buried her affection for that old home, along with the family divisions and pain of her mother's tragic departure. She became that kid, the one who falls through the cracks and stumbles into adulthood wrecked, scarred, and undisciplined. As an adult, Mary discovered, fell in love with, and purchased another vintage New England house with a unique history of its own, one tied to Dutch immigrants. As she learned more about the home's past and renovated its structure, self-restoration and healing occurred in her own life. Along the way, she also experienced romance and humor and learned lessons about motherhood, loss, and tradition. Mary recounts these experiences in her touching and inspiring memoir, Home, My Story of House and Personal Restoration. She joins us today to explain how your home can help you heal. Well, Mary, welcome to Home Where You Belong. I'm really thrilled to have you as a guest today. Thanks for having me, Chip. I'm pleased to be here. I'm really intrigued by your book, um, Home, My Story of House and Personal Restoration. It really ties really well to the theme of our podcast, Home Where You Belong. I know in addition to authoring this memoir, you're a successful medical writer, journalist, but I really want to go back to kind of to the beginning, I guess, take you back to your childhood. Tell us a little bit about what that was like, where you grew up, what your family was like, and Tell us about the old home there that you that you kind of fell in love with. So I grew up in a small town in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston, maybe maybe 30 minutes north of Boston. And I grew up in a, I guess I would say a very religious family. My mother's side of the family and my father's side, they were both Catholics, although my parents weren't, you know, avid church goers all the time relatives on both sides of the family were. So my mother's family, you know, all of my aunts and uncles, I can remember going to church and and going to church with them whenever I was visiting. And the same on my father's side of the family. And we always belonged to some church. So it it was a lot like that. And I think there was, I really felt like there was a lot of goodness naturally running through our family, not just because of the religious aspect, but because it's hard to explain, right? It just felt like something innate that helped us all to understand what was right and what was wrong, but still things went awry. And I think that was because there were just a lot of pressures based, you know, on my family and my, my mother growing up. So it was, it could be difficult at times. I don't know of any family that doesn't have to deal with some dysfunction and challenges, mine included, obviously. Without going into maybe too much detail, I mean, what kind of impact did that have on you? And and how did that relate to kind of the actual home that you grew up in? 
So the house that I knew as a child was very special to me for many reasons. It was a big old house and it had lots of little hiding places for children that I just loved. I could run outside and around the corner of the house and and there was a little place under the eaves that you could get to. Um, and I used to just love to go in there and uh, I wasn't too far from the outdoors in the daylight, but it was just dark enough in there that you felt cozy. And there were little landings at the bottom of stairways where my brother and I would play with his toyish soldiers or play with cards and things like that. So it was a special place and it seemed to have its own personality. There are really two houses that I talk about in the book. The first house is that one that I grew up in. The second house was a house I discovered as an adult and that I became very, very bonded to, which is not a good thing when you are looking at a house, you know, and it's in a little bit of a deplorable situation and you're a little brokenhearted and you don't know how to fix it up. It's not good to walk in and have this emotional bond with it <laughs> from a financial perspective. You really should run away if that happens. But I I just love this place so much. And so the book features these two houses and it, the story just kind of bridges them. And then I think you, the second part of your question was about what was difficult, right? Sure, sure. Well, what was difficult for me in my first home was that when I was seven years old, my mother committed suicide. She was under a lot of pressure and she wasn't, she hadn't been mentally ill. I did a lot of research later on to understand because of course, as a child, I rolled with the punches and I, I didn't quite understand all that was happening around me. But as an adult, I could go back reframed with my adult perspective and, and try to understand better why she did what she did. But after my mom passed away, our lives were just never the same. And that house was never the same. And the personality that it had before was different. Everything was different. And I think that's what's hard for children who experience trauma, that everything is so different afterwards. And I think that as an adult, after becoming a mom myself, I would hear the expression often, don't worry about it. Children are resilient. <laughs> As if it has no impact, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just think that children experience trauma differently and they don't show it, but there's a lot going on internally. And I'm not a psychologist, Chip. I can't speak to that end of it. I can only speak to you know, how I felt, what I went through and how it, how many years it took for me to sort of unravel all of it. Obviously a, a traumatic thing for anyone in particular. You said you were seven when that happened, when your mom? Yes. Yeah. And I believe from reading about your book, you said not long after your mother's death that your father had remarried. And then maybe not long after that, it decided to send you and your siblings away to older siblings. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. My parents had two generations of children. So they had three children. And then there was a 15-year hiatus. And they had three more children. So I came in the second litter, if you will. I came in the middle of the second group. And so by the time this tragedy happened, our older siblings were pretty independent people. They were in their 20s. And my sister made the greatest sacrifice. The youngest of my family's six children 
is my brother, Donald, and he has Down syndrome. And he was only four years old, three or four years old when my mother passed away. Very, very young. Mm -hmm. And my brother, Mike, was like a year and a half older than me. So he was like nine, eight, nine years old. So obviously, there was, you know, a huge child care gap sure. when Absolutely. my mother passed. So my sister, who was 23 years old, stayed home with us to care for us. When my father remarried, and he, he remarried a wonderful woman. And it, it was really hard what happened between them. But he remarried her. My sister moved out of the home. And eventually she took my younger brother, Donald, because she was very concerned about his care. And sure. my stepmother wasn't, was not in a, um, a state of mind or physical condition to care for him. So my brother Donald went with my sister first. At first, my brother Mike and I, the other younger child, moved in with my stepmother and my father. But then my brother Mike wasn't doing well there. He was fighting with one of my stepbrothers physically. Okay. So he was sent to live with my older brother, Andy. And then I hit... Uh, just like a, a year or two later, hit teenage years. I was rebellious. I was misbehaving. So I ended up leaving and living with my sister. So we all <laughs> we were all sort of booted out. And, you know, then they were living. My father was living with my stepmother and, and her children. Were there still opportunities for you to connect with your other siblings at times? Or did you lose touch? There were opportunities to connect. I was living with my younger brother, Donald, right? So okay. I saw him a lot, but um, my brother, Mike, not as much. We had sort of, we weren't estranged, but it, it was hard. You know, it wasn't like a normal family. You know, it was, it was a little odd. What sticks in your mind from that transition period? I mean, does it, still feel traumatic? Do you, I guess, what are some of the memories or thoughts that come to your mind when you think back on that time when you were leaving your father's house, going somewhere else and other siblings were kind of doing the same? Yeah. So first of all, it's not traumatic anymore at all. Okay. I think I've definitely processed a lot of it. My childhood was very, very rocky because my father he actually ended up leaving the marriage and going back to the marriage and leaving the marriage and going back to the marriage. And he had created, you know, this uh, apartment in the in our old house. My sister moved in the bottom, uh, this apartment house, and she moved in the bottom and we lived up top. And, uh, and then, you know, there was all this back and forth happening and it was a little crazy. But what I remember was eventually my brother Mike and I were left alone to live in that apartment because my father had left, you know, one of these times to go back. What I realized is having older brothers and sisters, when things go wrong, if your parents are not there to whip you into shape, your older brothers and sisters will. <laughs> they kind <laughs> of mine, assume that assume that role, right? Mine saved me for myself. They really did in different ways. I mean, there was one time when I was now back then, like right now, at least up here in Massachusetts, marijuana is, you know, it's legal if you have certain amounts and so forth. I couldn't, I, I have no interest in smoking it at this point. But when I was a teenager, I had a lot of interest in it. 
and my sister found it, you know, in my bedroom. Okay. And after, you know, after she was done with me, I would never wanted to touch the stuff again. Because <laughs> <laughs> back then it was like really bad, right? If you were doing that yeah. kind of thing. And, and kind of in the same era, there was a time when I had a creepy guy coming over to see me as a teenager. And after my brother got done dealing with that situation, that guy never came back. So they yeah. took care of me in that way. And they, they were never physically abusive with me ever, ever, ever. But it was just the way that they kind of led into us. And it, it just helped us to really understand that what we were doing was a little bit too far off the rails and sure. uh, we got to get on those rails. So I'm very thankful for them and for what they did to help me. Cause I don't think I'd be who I am without, you know, their guidance. Well, you mentioned a minute ago that, that you feel like you've come through and dealt with the traumatic past, you know, I'm sure that didn't, happened overnight and it was a process and that's part of what your what your book focuses on how did you kind of start to work through that and kind of move past the trauma what contributed to your healing hmm. that's such a great question chip and i have to say i it was rough and tumble as a child the whole way through all the way up through past my marriage it was just very rough and tumble when my mom passed away our family went into silence over it. It was mm. like one of those things. We don't talk about this. We just, we're just going to all move on. That was then this is now and get through that. There was no therapy. There was really nothing like that. I just kind of winged it, I guess. <laughs> but as I got older, I think having children, number one, having my own children was a great big benefit for me. When I first had my children, I wondered if I could even do the motherhood thing, not having a mother myself, right? And I used to read a lot of books, and I did not want to read books about grief or suicide. All of that was, it felt like an aversion to me. Reading books about grief and suicide felt like drinking dirty dishwater. I just didn't mm -hmm. want to do it. It just, I couldn't face it. In fact, I couldn't really talk about what my mother, all you know, my mother and what happened until decades. It took decades. And then when I started to talk about it, I would need to cry. I couldn't do it without crying. And now I can talk about it without crying. So that's a good thing. There was a time in there when I was, you know, back in the days where there were bookstores and they weren't online. <laughs> there was a book on the shelf and it was called Motherless Daughters. And it uh -huh. leaped off the shelf at me. That term just hit me. I never thought of myself like that. And it's a book that, that was written by Hope Elderman. She now has an organization called Motherless Daughters. And she has, a, you know, you can find her online easily. I tried to connect with her, but um, I was unsuccessful because I wanted to thank her for this book. And it really helped me to understand that I wasn't alone. So that was, I think, one of the first steps toward healing was reading her book. And then after that, becoming a mom myself, I read lots of books about parenting. How do I be a good mom? And that was very, very important to me. And, I, and then I realized, I'm going to rewind a little bit here. When my mother passed away, okay, I'll tell you this little story. The day that she committed suicide, that morning I had walked into the kitchen and I said, Ma, I'm sorry, but I wet my bed. Well, that afternoon or later that morning, 
she committed suicide. So oh I always thought she did it because I wet my bed. Uh, that must've been hard. Yeah. I mean, that's what I kind of, you know, and I put it out of my head and I didn't tell anybody because I really felt like it was my fault. And I lived with that for a long time. Once I had children of my own, my two boys who are now 30 and 33, all the things that a kid does growing up, especially two boys, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I can remember there was a time when my son Jeff spilled uh, maple syrup on a floor I just washed and then he ran down a hallway. You know, he had to wash the feet and the floor on the spot. <laughs> there was a time when the two boys were playing with swords in their room and one hit the light above them and, oh the, and the light came crashing down and off to the hospital. We had a rush because of that. I had a kid. You know, they have broken lanterns outside. They have they have slung mud at themselves and friends and each other and all the things. There is, and then of course they've been sick. They've wet their beds and and they have you know been sick in their and everything. There is nothing they would have ever done that would make me want to kill myself. Nothing. I mean, absolutely sure. no. And so I I came to the realization that I could put that out of my head now. There must have been something more going on. Sure, so that, yeah. was, that was very healing, just reframing it through my own experience as a mom. Absolutely. Let's move forward a little bit. You know, you talked about the attachment you had to your childhood home. But then it sounds like when you became adult, you later found another old home that um, really resonated with you. You alluded to it a little bit. Tell us about that when you found that and what was it about that that appealed to you? Hmm. So about, oh, maybe two years, three years, maybe four years into my <laughs> divorce, after my divorce, I found myself shopping for a house again with my two boys. Okay. Uh, we had been living in a condo after my divorce and the boys wanted more room to roam, bedrooms of their own and that sort of thing. And I just had a terrible breakup with the first man that I had, I had grown to love after my divorce. And um, so brokenhearted, there I am looking for this, this house and everything we looked at, I looked at with my realtor wasn't working for me. It was either too cookie cutter, not the right space, what have you. And then one day she called me and she said, this, this house, it has your, it just has you written all over it. And so I met her there. It had been raining. I got there first and I was walking around outside and it had um, a cobblestone apron at the bottom, although it was warped. <laughs> it had a little black wrought iron fence around the front yard. It was rusted. <laughs> it had flagstone walkway up to the front door with this tangle of like weeds and broom plants and everything else. And you know, there were strawberry plants that were warring with everything else and these old vines that were wrapping around other things. Um, and then she showed up and we went in and that house, it just it just spoke to me. You know, it said, welcome home. I, I just felt immediately like this is the house. And if you ever feel like that, Chip, I hope you know you should run because, <laughs> <laughs> right, we need to think about these things a little bit more thoroughly. But anyway, it was a special house. And I do believe, you know, I've been, um, I heard the word predecessor chi 
in a talk the other day and I thought, hmm, maybe that's what I was feeling. Like it was just some kind of great energy in that place that spoke to me. It sounds like it did have a, every house has a history, right? But that one had a particularly interesting one that you kind of resonated with. And, and it sounds like you learned more about that even after you purchased it and moved in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So here I am loving this house, wooden floors and archways and tons of charm and character. And a year later, after um, buying the house, I was working in the yard outside and the strange car pulled up the driveway. And from the passenger's side, this woman looked up at me and said, I'm 88 years old. And when I was a little girl, I used to live here. And wow. so that day, Pauline Bailey was her name, gave me a tour of my home. And she pointed out all these artifacts. Like for an example, she pointed to the wooden floor and she showed me where um, there was a hidey hole in the floor and her father used to hide $50 bills in there. He was saving money to take her mother on a trip. She pointed out a cabinet in the kitchen that he, where they kept the family Bible and they used it to learn English. Her father used the Bible to learn how to speak English. He was from Friesland, Holland. Oh, okay. They were Im immigrants to the U.S. then. Yeah, uh, he was. His his wife was born in the U.S., but he was okay. born there. And he built the house. Oh, wow. Um, she pointed to these beautiful china cabinets in the dining room, which I absolutely adored. And she told me that he built them from the the encasements when he took out a stairway behind them. So he had um, taken out a stairway behind it, but instead of just taking the whole thing out, he kept the the uh, molding around it and he built the China cabinet. And it's wow. just in with little drawers behind it, underneath it and everything it was beautiful. The window where she and her sister used to lean out and smoke their cigarettes. And outside this flagpole, I mean, this house had a flagpole the size of a flagpole that you would see in a public schoolyard. And it was white and rusted. And I was thinking, I got to take that thing down. It's an eyesore. And I said to her, you know, did your family put up the flagpole? And she said, yes, both my brothers went to World War II and my dad put it up when the first one went to war. So there was no way I was going to take that down. And her, her mother had planted the lilac that was it was about 50 years old by that time. It was a huge tree, and I love that. And it was actually flowering at the time she came. So all these things became heirlooms for me. And that's really where I started writing the book, because I wanted to remember all this. And it just spurred a lot of interest in the house and the town. And I wanted to know more. And so I wasn't thinking I'm going to write this book based on that one event, but I decided that I wanted to sort of document it. Well, yeah, it sounds like an amazing story. It must've given you a whole different perspective or feeling about the house that you already like, but now it, it gave you even a, like a, a different perspective. Yeah. It helped me to appreciate things that I never thought about before at a time that I really needed to be appreciating those things. So I was a young mom here I am, you know, dating and doing all the things that, you know, young single moms do good, you know, being a good mom, but also just maybe putting emphasis on things that weren't as important as they should be. And it made me, rem you know, just think about 
a family. Now, of course, I didn't know them personally, and they could have had all kinds of dysfunction. I have no idea what their lives were like. They had a story of their own, I'm sure, right? They did, but they were together the whole time. They hadn't, you know, kind of spread out like we did. And so here is this family, um, this father that built this house, stayed there their entire lives until their children were launched and out of the nest and stayed. And that was it, that one house. And it was a strong house, even though it had some broken parts that needed to be fixed. It was a strong house and it was a good house and it was charming and beautiful. And I loved it and it protected me. And I started to think about how important it is to preserve things and take care of things. Like one of the stories that Pauline told me was that I think it was every week or month she and her sisters and her mom would get on their hands and knees and buff out those floors, which were in magnificent condition by the time I got to it. Wow. And her father had these workbenches, one in the basement and one in the garage that I adopted for my gardening. But these workbenches were thicker than anything I've ever seen. I mean, they did not budge. They were huge and wonderful. I mean, they were like the width of a twin bed and the length of like two twin beds. They were phenomenal. And if I could have taken them with me when I left, I would have, but they're too big to move and too heavy. And so that that tells you something. There were all kinds of items that he saved to repair, like old doors and pieces of glass. So they were caring for this home. They really cared about it. It was their history. It kind of makes me think of that's kind of really what makes a house a home, right? That it's the history and what happened there and, and the care that people take over things they either built or lived in. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I think it's about, it's not so much all the stuff that we accumulate in our, in our lives. It's about how we leave it for others, you know, is what I started thinking and how, how that sort of parallels to being a mom. The most important thing is taking care of those kids. So they're, you know, so when they're, when they're launched, they're strong and good too, you know? So I think it just helped me to see the long run, and the the runway that I was on to that long run and that it was more important than anything else I was doing right then. I needed to take care of my kids and my home so that we would have a safe, strong place for them. What a gift, right? And it, it sounds like um, from some other stuff I read from your bio that didn't that kind of also spur you to learn or investigate a little bit more about your own family's background or immigrant history? Am I getting that right? Absolutely. When I was growing up, there was so much turbulence that I didn't appreciate the family I had. So while my, my immediate family was going through all this, you know, these difficult times, I had a wonderful extended family on both sides. On my father's side, my, my paternal grandparents are from Madeira, you know, which is an island off the coast of Portugal. It's part of Portugal. And in that first house, my childhood home, they lived next door to us. There was a little path between our house and their house. And I used to go over there every day. Uh, They passed away, you know, when I was very young, like, like six years old and like eight years old or something. But while they were living and when I was younger, I would just walk over there, you know, four or five years old and go see what Vavor and Vavu were doing. (laughs) Uh, My grand, 
father of Abu had grapes that he grew over these benches. And I had lots of cousins. My father had several brothers and sisters and they all had children and they all lived in the neighborhood. And so we all played together and we knew each other well. And it was a very loving environment. I could go to my Auntie Teresa's house for lunch and I could go to my uncle Johnny's house and swim in his pool in the backyard with my cousins. And at night we took over our little section of the town playing like hide and go seek, you know, and all these backyards running around like wild things. And I had that, but in all this noise and confusion, I couldn't relate or remember it. And so, you know, the Osterman family is the family who owned that house that I eventually bought as an adult. And it reminded me that I have, look, my grandpa came here too, and he he worked in mills and they worked hard so that we would have something better. So awesome. it helped me to connect with them. On the other side, my maternal grandmother came from England and my maternal grandfather, all I ever used to say was, Pa was from Maine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I didn't get to know them, my my maternal grandparents, because they had passed away before I was born. But my aunts and uncles, they were just wonderful people on that side of the family. And they were very caring and often took me, you know, I had an aunt who was an, a nun, Auntie Sister, we called her. And she wasn't one of those mean ones that cracked her. <laughs> she was she, she was, was a nice nun. Nice. Yeah, she was. And she was very, very encouraging. And so all of this, it helped me to remember them and the lessons that they left for me. But unfortunately, I didn't appreciate them until I was older. That's interesting. I turned 60 last year and I, as a kind of a milestone trip, went to England and Scotland where my ancestors are from and learned so much more about my family history. It was amazing. Folks go back and see that or listen to that episode um, from our website, but it really just gave me a much better appreciation about family and history and how knowing that kind of makes you feel more tied in or a part of things or a continuation. What did learning that uh, information about your family do for you? You know, it's interesting, Chip, that you say you just went back to find your roots. This this summer, though, I fulfilled a lifelong dream and went to Madeira. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I've been wanting to see it first, you know, myself uh, forever. And it's such a beautiful place. It's subtropical. There's waterfalls everywhere, an ocean view almost everywhere. And before I went, I, I wandered off and wondered, why do they ever come over here? You know, they, <laughs> like it's an oasis there. But after going there, I understood why they came here. And I think it has to do with hills. <laughs> with it's, hills? Oh, okay. Yes. Very, very steep, narrow, you know, roads. And it's a very different Madeira today than it was in 1913 when they left. It would have been hard to get water up and higher elevations and life was hard there, right? And so obviously that's why they came here. And I really enjoyed going there. I think I found their home, you know, where they lived. But oh, that's I'm verifying awesome. that with the library there and I'm verifying it with family here to make sure it's that one before I claim it. But I took pictures of it and the neighbors seemed to think it's the one. Um, it was just quite a story, even how I did that. But but I would say that there's, you know, is there something, and I'm sure there's some scientist out there who knows the answer to this question, but it's not me, 
We know that from our DNA, we get traits like our eye color, our hair color, our height, et cetera, and, and unfortunately certain diseases and, and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, some good mutations too, but is there something in our DNA that is built within us to seek our origins, you know, because what Absolutely. makes us want to go back, you know, and do that and really be there and feel that it's, you know, we're a part of it, if you will. So um, it's something I'm thinking about now. I actually talked to a, a genealogist that I interviewed as part of that episode when I went back to England and Scotland, and she was talking about that. I'm not going to remember the scientific technical term, but things that happen in your family's past can get kind of marked in your DNA. There's a term for it I, that doesn't come to my mind right away, but I, it's your family history, right? And it it impacts you. You don't have to be defined by it, but there's something to me about knowing about it that makes you feel connected and you can learn from it. And maybe there's some things you want to repeat and carry on and some things you want to change. Right. But it was just really meaningful to me to, to experience that. Oh, that sounds very interesting. I'd like to know more about it. Well, Mary, it sounds like from your experience, the home that you bought as an adult, you obviously have a special attachment to what role do you think that played in your healing? How can a home help us heal? Mm, that's a great question. I think it's in the caregiving and trying to preserve something that is bigger than you. When we are homeowners, we're really just transient stewards because that house is going to last long after we're gone, right? And so when it's it's almost as if you know, we have these contracts with banks, we call them mortgages, right? Yeah. Some of us are lucky yeah. not to have them, but, sure. but regardless of whether or not you have a contract with your bank, it's as if we have a contract with our home itself. And it goes something like this. Uh, house, I promise to, you know, make you a little bit better than I found you and and repair your problems, your leaky pipes and your roof or what have you. And in return, home, you're going to give me shelter and provide a good place for me to become the person I'm meant to be. And so you know that when you get to a place that has a, a leaky roof or some <laughs> kind of a, uh, you know, a shoddy foundation that somewhere someone broke their contract with that house. But isn't it wonderful when you arrive at a place where that contract wasn't broken, you know, and it's, strong, and, and it's like, and you just feel like there was some benevolent person in your, in that home's past that you don't even know who was thinking about this, right? They weren't just doing it for themselves. I mean, sure they were, but they, they made that house strong. So it would last way after their time. And I think there's a real healing element to doing that to really thinking about, you know, the home I have now when I had to put in and, and there's, I'm going to talk about um, something that is polar opposite of this. Okay. Cause okay. I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a good job and I've been able to do these things. And if I put a new driveway in, I try to get the, you know, a high quality or high grade things, roofs, just take care of problems. Even if, if I can do them temporarily, until there's a better fix, which there always seems to be. Okay. 
so there's that. Just having a strong home is a very healing thing. About two weeks ago, I was walking home to my home, um, which is not that vintage house anymore, by the way. I sold it when my kids left the nest. And on my way home, I encountered a woman and she was carrying a sack over her shoulder and she stopped me and she asked me a question. And I said, you know, I answered her question, which was kind of a sweet question. And I said, where are you headed? And she said, I'm going to the platform. And I said, what is the platform? And she said, it's the train station. It's where I'm going to sleep tonight. And now know that in my town now where I live, the train station is not a building. It is a platform with a roof above it. It's one of those train stations, the train stop. You know, you're out in the elements and she, it was breaking my heart. And I said, well, have you checked with any of the shelters? And she said, well, you have to call ahead. You can't just go there. And I don't have a phone. Uh And so we stood there together and I called three shelters and three churches, churches, and I couldn't get her in anywhere. And it broke. So this is a woman who's unhoused. She has no home. And I'm writing and talking about home. And so, you know, it's when you think about just having a home is a healing thing for some people. And it's such a complicated problem. I made some phone calls the next day for her that these individuals need advocates. It's not easy just to take them to a shelter. You can't show up at a shelter. I never knew that, you know, people answered the phones at the shelter, but they wouldn't take her because they were full. And I understand that there's a complication. So, you know, just having a home is healing for some people. And we need to remember that. And when I asked her, I said, can I bring you one thing tonight that would make your life easier? She had a new sleeping bag, she told me. And she told me she uses the restroom at the restaurant across the street. And and late at night, there's uh, porta potties for the construction workers across the street that she uses. And it was, again, breaking my heart. And when I said to her, can I bring you one thing tonight that would make your life easier? She paused and she thought, and she said, you know, I lost my comb. Oh, wow. I I mean, you know, it, it, it was heartbreaking. So, you know, I'd like to mention that because I think we all have to try to help. And I, up here in um, Massachusetts, in my town anyway, we don't see a lot of unhoused people because it's cold up here you know it's it's hard and um but anyway i just wanted to mention that no i really appreciate you sharing that story i did an episode a few months ago on on homelessness and talked to uh, the director of the local homeless coalition here and it is a challenging problem and that is a good reminder you know what you just said just having a home is a blessing and one that too often we take for granted. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that story. I wrap up every episode with the same question. It is, what is it that makes you feel at home? Mm. There's many elements to home. There's a spiritual element, I think, to home. and And I think when I talk about the spiritual element to a home, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about that chi or chai chi, right? The the, the right. energy of a home. The energy. Yeah. There's an emotional connection to home, the homes that we love and the way that we feel in our sanctuaries or not. 
right? We're unhoused. I think there's an intellectual connection to houses when we think about uh, where we want to be and the logistics that have to do with that. And there's financial, right? Financial aspect to home, the how we can afford them and and all of what a house sure. needs. And, and I think too, and part of that um, emotional part is feeling at home in situations with people or wherever you are. And I find I feel most at home when I'm ever with my kids, wherever they are. You know, it's not a physical structure, but I'm home. It's that relationship. And my granddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Great, great answer. Well, Mary, thanks so much for joining us today, sharing your insights and experience. Um, it really was a pleasure to have you. And I'm, I look forward to reading your book and learning more about your story. Um, I know it's going to be an encouragement and inspiration to a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of people who have already read it. For those who are listening, you can learn more about Mary and her book, Home, My Story of House and Personal Restoration, by visiting her website at mgbarlow.com. The site includes links to the different places where you can purchase the book, and I'll also include those in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Thanks again, Mary, for joining us. Thanks so much, Chip. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a rating and review and tell your friends about us. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.